Good. Great. Very well welcome to everyone to the first of our series of Be Thinking talks this autumn. Um, in two weeks' time, we're going to be having a film. Not quite sure which one it is yet. Um, followed by a discussion. And then the following week, so that was the 1st of November, then the 8th of November, um, we have Ellis Potter coming from Switzerland. Ellis, for those who don't know him, is American. He became a Buddhist monk and ended up in Switzerland and was converted under the ministry of Francis Schaeffer. And then Ellis has worked for a long time at Le Brie in Switzerland. And now he... Um, works mostly in Eastern Europe um, sharing the gospel around there so he's definitely worth hearing he's an excellent speaker he's going to be talking about comparing Eastern and Western worldviews so bringing some of his knowledge of Buddhism um, you know comparing how Buddhists view the world and um, how Christians view the world and that sort of thing um, I've heard similar talk before, and I can say it's an excellent talk. So please come. Please invite people along as well, these yellow flies. This evening we have Steve Ellicott speaking to us about postmodernism. Steve is a lecturer, a lecturer in mathematics at the University of Brighton, um, a reader in mathematics, which is like a very good lecturer. Um, so um, before I hand over to him, let's just pray. Um, that God would help us this evening. Thank you, Lord, that we can be here tonight to think about things in some more depth than maybe we usually do. We ask you, Lord, to help us, help our concentration, help our um, understanding, and we pray, Lord, that um, you would help us see something of your glory um, through what we think about tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, well, um, yeah, uh, this, um, I hope you're sort of not expecting a detailed analysis of postmodernism because that's not what this talk is. It's um, really to do with the power of story and the power of um, narrative. And um, the question is is narrative all there is? Because, in a sense, that is the postmodern view that narrative is all there is that all meaning is constructed. And um, it's really looking at this idea of, of story that, and trying to think how it might relate to a Christian worldview that is the, the, what this talk is about. And I'd like to um, start with a, a kind of fairy story, but a story that actually is at least based in... Um, oh, yeah, sorry. No, it's just, uh, so, yeah, it's about the power of the story, but then I'm going to talk about stories that fail and I'll say a little bit at the end about the Bible story and how we might consider it in a sort of, uh, in the light of postmodern views of, of, of knowledge, but not um, sort of taking the postmodern views at, post, at face value. So here's a story. Once upon a time, in a land not very far away, there was a beautiful girl who worked, in fact, in a nursery school. And one day she made a handsome prince. And, uh, but so, well, all princes are handsome by definition, so it's. Uh, <laughs> um, very soon they were married. 
But unfortunately, they didn't live happily ever after. And in fact, as we know, there's a newspaper article here, of, uh, I haven't brought my pointer with me, but uh, facing in opposite directions and um, if you were around at the time, you, there was a lot of um, TV analysis and uh, interviews and people putting their own point of view. But they didn't live happily ever after and in fact, not long after that, the, the girl died. And then something quite remarkable happened, again, if you were around at the time, all the people cried. Almost literally. People understand perhaps, you know, I think most people realise that something strange about this. Anybody with any sort of analytical view of the world would have said, well, what are we doing here? And yet, in a sense, we all signed up for it anyway. We all, you know, because it's, we all joined in the morning because it was, in a sense, the end of a beautiful story. It was a tragic story, and as it turned out, but it, it just seemed a tremendous waste and a tremendous tragedy. Really, probably in the scheme of things, it wasn't that important, but it just seemed like a terrible tragedy at the time. And in fact, a few years ago, there was a, a film called The Queen, which set out to explore the historical events that surrounding surrounded this um, death and then, but in particular um, the power of that myth of the people's princess because that's what it was really was was this idea of the people's princess that, that myth of somebody who was in a sense one of the people but almost the, the perfect celebrity you know the celebrity nowadays doesn't actually do anything it's just, a, just somebody who um, uh, is there as a sort of icon almost and surely Prince, Princess Diana above all was the ultimate uh, icon of that sort and it, there was a tremendous power in that, in that myth at the time and as I say the film The Queen he really explored the details of that uh, at that time and if you haven't seen the film yet I'll, oh, I haven't seen the film just to tell you basically what it's about um, after the messy divorce, and particularly when the concern for Diana's sons, the royal family initially is unable to um, buy into this myth, in order to take seriously the, the, what everybody else seemed to be taking probably too seriously. And um, even to the extent that the monarchy itself is rock, was rocked. And... Um, a lot of the film is concerned with this and the Queen sort of you know, you know not used to being so unpopular and a lot of, that's a lot of what the film is about and it probably is true that the monarchy itself was, was threatened by these events and eventually after I mean it's a long film but eventually after a lot of heart searching the Queen is forced to make a speech reflecting the public mood and saying how we all love Diana, really. Um, and I think, to me, the, this is the, the crucial moment in the film. And, um, in fact, what the film shows is the Tony Blair character, not obviously Tony Blair himself, but the actor who played Tony Blair, surrounded by his um, advisors and spin doctors, 
watching this on the television, watching this speech on the television. And um, one of these rather cynical spin doctors sort of says, well, you know, she's saying all this but she doesn't believe a word of it. And to me, Tony Blair gave the absolute perfect postmodern reply to this. He says, uh, that's true, yes, that's true, but it doesn't matter. That's what you do to survive. You had to buy into the story in order to survive and the Queen had to buy into the story in order to survive because the story has such tremendous power. So even though she didn't really, you know, wasn't really saying what she felt, she had in a sense no choice but to buy into this story. Oh, yes. So it doesn't matter, that's what you do to survive. That to me is the crucial point in this film. Stories are what we tell ourselves to make sense of the world. We all try and make sense of the world. And um, we tend to have sort of big stories, or we have tended to have big stories, that try and give us some way of understanding the world. The world is a complicated place and we want to try and understand it. And so we tend to construct stories around it to try and understand it. And for the ancient Romans, for instance, the big story was the state. All, yeah, all the sort of philosophy, really, all the activity of Rome revolved around the idea of the state. The, the great um, political entity that was, was Rome, an economic entity that was Rome. Life was about the spread of Roman rule and civilization. That was what Rome was all about. Now, of course, in the latter years of the Roman Empire, when Rome became officially Christian, then this story became Christianized, and um, the spread of Roman civilization was not so much the, the the idea of the Roman state as such, but the idea of Christian civilization to be um, fed and to be um, held by the Roman, held together by the Roman Empire. But of course that didn't happen. The, the fall of the um, Roman Empire was a great shock. And um, I think he's explored somewhere in Augustine's book, The City of God, in which he has to point out, that, or come to terms with the fact that the City of God is not a political entity at all. It's uh, something entirely different, something that God himself builds. But certainly it was a tremendous shock, the collapse of Roman civilization to all of Christendom and led to what we now talk about as the Dark Ages. But in the Middle Ages, Western Europe at least, Christian Western Europe, adopted a new kind of myth, a new story about how the world was built. And uh, this actually is Dante's version. Um, I'm afraid you can't really read the text, but the idea is that here is earth where we live, underneath is hell, and then there are these various uh, circles which where the uh, stars are, the planets are and right at the top there is the um, Elysian realm where God lives. Now of course essentially this was um, Aristotle's view of the world but it uh, has been rather adopted into a Christian view of um, thinking about uh, how the world was put together. It's, uh, it's Aristotle's cosmology overlaid with the Christian symbolism. And it's a very nice, tidy view, isn't it? God and angels and planets and men and demons 
all have a clear place. There's all the right place for them. It's stable, it's even in static in a sense. It's true that the, the planets move, but according to Aristotle, the planets only move, the stars and planets only move in perfect circles. So um, everything is static and, and set and firm and perfect. And even if it isn't perfect on Earth, that's only a sort of small bubble um, of imperfection in the uh, perfect universe. And of course it also made up and down very tidy. You know, down was bad, up is good. Makes it very easy to, uh, to know where you are in the scheme of things. But of course this world view was, was shattered by Copernicus and Galileo. Um, they showed that in fact the earth goes round the sun, not the sun round the earth. Now, of course, this wasn't just a scientific theory. I mean, in fact, the, the, the sort of myth that's told nowadays is that the, the Catholic Church was totally opposed to Galileo and Galileo was some kind of atheist hero. And Galileo, of course, wasn't an atheist at all. He was a very devout Catholic. Um, he, and um, that's the um, sort of structure, you know, that the, the Roman Catholic Church was totally opposed to these ideas. Well, initially, in fact, that's far from being the case. But the problem was that if Galileo and Copernicus was right, this nice tidy idea of, the, of God at the top and the devil and demons at the bottom and um, everybody in its place was going to be undermined. Well, in fact, it was undermined. And this really was the, was the objection that the, the, the Catholic Church had to this new cosmology. So, from about 1600 on, um, a, a new story took over. It's often regarded Descartes, perhaps, as the founder of this, the idea that everything should be found out by reason. Descartes, we would, after Descartes, we would reconstruct the world as mathematics. Everything would have the certainty that we attach to mathematics. Our knowledge would be certain and unshakable. But actually, this story soon split into two competing strands. On the one hand, there were the theists who understood that the world made sense because it was designed by God and therefore it made sense to search for scientific explanations because the world was built by a rational God. Well, on the other hand, there were, the nat there were naturalists and the naturalists took the view that God wasn't necessary, that the natural world, the physical world, is all you, all you get, all there is. And science was the key to understanding it. Now, up to about uh, 1850 or so, these worldviews very much existed together in competition, but it wasn't entirely clear which was going to take over. And of course, if you um, people again often assume that all the scientists were opposed to a theistic view, but of course, historically, that's simply untrue. Most of the famous um, 19th century scientists you've heard of, putting aside perhaps the biologists, you look at... You look at um, uh, Faraday, for instance, well known as a, to be a, a very um, orthodox Christian. Um, 
James Clerk Maxwell, the famous physicist, Maxwell's equations, uh, Lord Kelvin, uh, Stokes, all these great British mathematical physicists, all very much um, theists and uh, believers in the order of the universe. And of course, even Darwin was no atheist really, he was essentially an agnostic. It was really only his successors that uh, made Darwin into a sort of orthodox atheism. But during the 19th century, nonetheless, it is true that the theists ran into increasing problems, particularly because the scientific evidence seemed to undermine a simple interpretation of biblical creation. Yes, it undermined a, a, scientific in, um, a simple interpretation of biblical creation. Now, it is debatable, of course, whether before, before the um, 16th century or so, everybody actually held a very simplistic understanding of the first chapters of Genesis. But anyway, they'd rather come to by about 1850 or so, and yet at the same time this position was becoming increasingly untenable. untenable what was clearly the case was that the world was a much more complicated place than a very simple interpretation might think. And um, of course it was, again, it was often uh, religious men who understood this, uh, who found this out, because they often were the scientists of the day and uh, many of the naturalists who sort of dug up generations and generations of bones and things were in fact uh, clergymen in many cases. But certainly it did seem that there were problems with the biblical understanding of creation and that maybe naturalism was the way to go. And indeed by about 1900 you might have thought that naturalism had triumphed. And of course Darwin, as as I say, was not really any atheist himself, certainly not a very militant one anyway, Um, but nevertheless he provided an explanation of origins that perhaps enabled the naturalists to have you know, to, to be at least plausible. And um, after Darwin, we'd be, we'd be our own gods. We would reconstruct the world by technology. And the triumph of reason seemed to be imminent. About 1900 had, for instance, in mathematics, the famous um, talk by um, Hilbert, famous German mathematician, who um, suggested in the next 30, 40, 50 years all the great problems of mathematics could be solved and and that we'd essentially understand the world by reason. And of course, I haven't got a slide for this, but in mathematics, in a sense, it almost came apart first with Gödel's incompleteness theorem in about 1930. But in the world um, as a whole, in the political world, the whole programme of modernism was really about to fall apart. First of all, it failed intellectually because the problem is, if we're just monkeys, how can we know anything truly? And the difficulty is that if, with any um, purely positivist view of knowledge, is that how do we know that our perceptions are, um, are valid? We don't, of course. So you can't actually, um, you, in the end, you can't know anything. And of course, as any philosopher will tell you, um, you can't prove the truth of science scientifically because you have to start by assuming it. You have to assume that knowledge is determined empirically. You can't prove that all knowledge is gained empirically. You can't prove that empirically. So called um, 
positivist position as philosophers abandon very quickly because um, you can't test the what's called the verification principle says that we'll, we'll only take as true that which can be verified empirically but of course the problem is you can't verify that statement empirically therefore by definition it isn't true and philosophers realise this very quickly to be fair but uh, sometimes the, the rest of the population doesn't seem to have quite caught up um, but actually perhaps even worse than that modernism failed morally Atheism, it turned out, could justify tyranny, either the communist tyrannies of Stalin or the right-wing tyrannies of of, um, Hitler and uh, Mussolini. And what did science give us? Well, it gave us a lot better ways of killing each other. We could kill each other on a grander scale than anybody had ever managed before in the 20th century. And, of course, as we towards the end of the century we began to realise that very technology that you know, it's, it's amazing isn't it, you listen to these um, TV programmes made in the 1950s sometimes sometimes they bring them out again just to have a laugh at because you know, how everything was so positive how, you, how opening all these nuclear power stations how this was going to give everybody free cheap energy and how by the turn of the century we were all going to be flying around in our own little helicopters and things um, as if, you know, by the 1950s people still thought technology was going to be perfect. And then we realised that it just doesn't quite work like that. Sure, we, you know, none of us wants to go back, none of us wants to give up our cars, do we? None of us wants to go back to abandoning our um, medical technology. And yet, we find that technology has its bad side as well, and in fact it actually can do damage the planet, and indeed is damaging the planet. So modernism failed morally as well as um, intellectually. So where do we go from there? And uh, this was the problem that the philosophers in the last half of the 20th century really wrestled with. Um, Sartre, for instance, the the, um, existentialist, took the view that ultimately there was only despair, especially the, the successor of Nietzsche, that the only logical position was despair and the only thing you could do is assert your existence by doing something. doesn't really matter what, but just do something. But Foucault and Derrida, and what we now think of as the postmodern philosophers, took a somewhat different view. They said, no, what there is, is text. There is story. And in a sense, if you go look at it, in a sense everything is story. But what they said was, of course, but there's no big story. Those things we had been looking at, these, uh, this medieval view, the modernist view, all tried to be a big story, a story that you know, was a theory of everything, if you like. But the postmodern said, no, there is no big story. There are just lots of little stories. And some of those stories can be very powerful, and that's why I started with that story of the people's princess. Some of these stories can have a tremendous power, but... There are two problems with the stories. First of all, that every text will ultimately contradict itself. This was one of the uh, views that that the philosophers took. But also, that the purpose of those stories, really and ultimately, is to enslave and manipulate us. And again, if you think of that story of the people's princess, you can um, see there's a certain amount of truth in that, isn't there? (laughs) These stories do manipulate us. They have a tremendous power for us. 
But ultimately, to the postmoderns, there is no meaning. There aren't really even any authors. It doesn't even really matter what the author of the story meant. There's only the text itself and what the power of that text is and what it does. There is just story. So in this postmodern world, the cosmos is a joke at our expense. And the only sensible policy is to laugh it in the face. And particularly towards the end of the 20th century, the the postmoderns delighted in the absurd. That's perhaps changed slightly in in this decade, but certainly towards the end of the 20th century, only, only the absurd was meaningful. The only thing you could do was laugh at it. Something that's tragic or disgusting becomes funny. And of course, Clockwork Orange was the precursor of this, was came out in the 70s. And yet, um, Stanley Kubrick was way ahead of his time with that <laughs> film. He realised that anything would, could have meaning. And um, so he uh, wrote this frightening vision, terrifying vision of the future, really. And then, of course, he found that it was actually encouraging people to violence. He actually withdrew it, which so it was withdrawn for, withdrawn for several decades and then has only been recently re-released again. It's a horrible film, but I personally think it's a film that some people should see, because it really gives you a very black view of the um, human nature and of the um, position of man without meaning. But of course you don't have to go that far back, because you've only got to look at Quentin Tarantino to um, see how film is used to make what is horrific, funny or amusing. I must admit I won't see, I won't watch Tarantino now because I haven't seen Kill Bill um, because I just don't want to be made to laugh at things that he makes us laugh at. But I have seen Pulp Fiction and if you haven't, I mean Pulp Fiction is hilarious, you can't argue with it, it's absolute scream, you laugh all the way through. And then you ask yourself what are you laughing at you're laughing at people blowing each other's brains out. So, you know, they, when they have to clean the car out because somebody accidentally blows somebody's brains out in the car. You're laughing at the problems that the John Travolta has to try and stop his boss's girlfriend dying from an overdose of, of um, heroin. It's, it's horrid, really, and yet the thing is very, very funny. Tarantino has this genius for making you laugh at what is really quite horrific. So I haven't seen Kill Bill, but if anybody has, I tell but I gather it's extremely violent. <laughs> but you know that becomes the result in the end. We look into the the horror of the of the cosmos, and the only thing we can do is laugh at it, because otherwise it is despair. And the conclusion here is that truth, in the end, is not discerned by reason, and um, you will really find this. This is um, debated in university circles. A few, maybe 30 years ago, Richard Dawkins would have been regarded as more or less the orthodox position, you know, very much a positivist view. Now, I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm actually in charge of postgraduate um, training at Brighton University and um, the, the key course we have in research methodology starts with... Um, this is issue of epistemology 
and actually they, we, we've just revamped it and they've got some, we've got two people doing the first issue, one of whom is, is an, an old-fashioned, dyed-in-the-wool positivist biologist and um, the other is a professor of education who's essentially an ethnographer and very much of the position that knowledge is constructed. Now, it's not that knowledge is out there, you just make your own knowledge and you construct it. And, um, but if there is truth, perhaps it's only found in paradox and humour and contradiction. And ultimately I make up my own story. Now, if you want to be a positivist, fine, that's, you can go with that story. But don't expect everybody else to, to sign up to it. If you want to believe in crystals, fine. Believe in crystals, but don't expect everybody else to sign up to it. You make your own story. And the only thing that matters is whatever effect it has on me and you. And of course the postmodern view itself is that sort of story. Um, it's rife with contradiction, postmodernism, of course, but then it's supposed to be. So you get, you know, they, there's no big story, and yet deconstruction becomes the big story. At each, um, each thing you look at, you try and pick it apart and see where, the, where it's been set up to manipulate people and what assumptions there are built in which are going to catch you out and manipulate you. And that becomes itself, in a sense, the, the way critical theory works and, and, and becomes the big story itself. So even the postmoderns have a big story and they're saying that there isn't a big story. But um, so, uh, the advantage of being a postmodernist is you don't actually have to make sense. It's a tremendous liberating position. It's only whether it's whatever effect it has on me and you. And as the film The Queen says, it doesn't matter if you believe what you're saying, that's what you do to survive. And this has a tremendous impact. I mean, I think sometimes people think this is all very academic and doesn't really affect the way the world works, but, but it does. So, in politics, instead of having leadership, and this was perhaps particularly true under, under Tony Blair's premiership, but uh, I think it's still largely true. And it's true, it's even more true of the American elections, and probably is so still, that focus groups replace leadership. You know, you're not actually saying this is the right thing to do. You find out not so much what the population wants as to what you've got a chance of getting away with. And debate, instead of having rational debate, you have spin. So instead of having, uh, you know, you've got this raw fact, how can you interpret it so that it supports me? There's a thing that we give to some of our business studies students which um, deals with some statistics. Um, on newspaper sales and how it was reported by the same statistics were reported by the Times and the Telegraph but carefully spun so that the, the, the same statistics imply to the Times readers that the Times is doing better and to the Telegraph readers that the Telegraph is doing better. It's mind control with, by manipulation of language. In other words, it's 1984 except instead of the Orwell's 1984 which was grim and... Uh, you know, grey and sort of un boring. <laughs> this, 19, this is 1984 with jokes. It's glitzy. It's glamorous. 
but it's still Big Brother. Now, we've talked about the story and the stories that failed. I just want to say a little bit about sort of the Christian view. We're not going into any great detail. Uh, this um, this picture of an ostrich with its uh, chicks. Do ostriches have chicks? I guess they do. Uh, young ostriches at the bottom, anyway. The mother bird and the young one spreading out its wings to protect the young. And um, this actually comes off an evolutionary website, talkorigins.org. Um, and ve- the vestigial wings of an ostrich are presented as evidence of evolution. Well, possibly they are, although even in this picture you can see that the, this ostrich is making good use of its wings. Um, well, certainly the wings of an ostrich are evidence of something. Ostriches are birds, yet they can't fly. There's certainly some significance in this. But you'd almost believe that nobody actually realised before the time of Darwin that ostriches couldn't fly. Um, so, uh, let me just refer you to this passage of Job. Written, and there's Job written, I don't think we know, do we, about at least 1500 BC, I think. So it's, it's thought to be one of the oldest books of the Bible, Job. And uh, Job comments that the ostriches can't fly. Well, the wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, but they cannot compare with the pinions and feathers of the stork. Um, and uh, later on he says that um, when the ostrich opens her wings to run, she laughs at horse and rider. The ostrich makes, may not be able to fly, but she makes very good use of her wings. Just, I don't think Job had ever seen a penguin, or we might have uh, talked about penguins' wings as well. Penguins can't fly either, but they're very good swimmers. But still, there is some point in this. God warns Job about oversimplifying the world. And it's possible that we have done that. It's possible that Christians have done that, tried to become come to too simple a view of the world, without realising that the world that God created is more complex than one might, have, one might try and think. And really that's what a lot of the book of Job is about. I say it's perhaps the oldest book in the Bible so it's clear that people have been doing this for an awfully long time. If you think about the book of Job, if you're familiar with it, it's about a very simple story. You do what God wants and God will bless you. Don't do it. If, you've done, if, you, if God isn't blessing you, you must have done something wrong. That's, you know, it takes 30 chapters of debate on this but that's basically what the book of Job is about. And, uh, but the point is, of course, that Job, ha- Job hadn't done anything wrong particularly, at least not worse than anybody else. In fact, on the whole, he was regarded as a righteous man in the Scriptures. And yet things didn't go well for him. And it was that simplistic view of the world that the book of Job was written about, and yet we still don't seem to have learnt that lesson 3,000 years later. Any theory of knowledge on modernist lines is doomed to failure because of self-reference. You can't prove you can't prove empirically that knowledge is empirical. You can't prove by reason that reason is consistent. And if all you conclude is that you know that our brains are deterministic anyway, then how can you attach any meaning to the um, to, to knowledge at all? Postmoderns are quite 
um, write about that. Um, and when, but Christians can think of the book of Job, I think, as a critique of reductionist modernist thinking. That's, you can't always come up with a simplistic explanation. If you do, it's very likely wrong. And the Bible itself certainly uses paradox. I mean, again, the whole of the book of Job is almost a paradox, or that reference to the ostrich is a paradox. It uses deliberate formal self-contradiction. And Phil, and that likes to, in sermons, likes to point out the way that on several occasions Paul quite deliberately formally contradicts himself to make his point. It uses logical reasoning as well, of course. It's not uh, irrational, the scripture. In fact, it uses a lot of logical reasoning, probably more than you might expect, which seems to be rather, um, rather belay Richard Dawkins' view that faith is knowledge without evidence. The Bible is very keen on evidence. Consider, think, think it through. And we won't disagree, perhaps, with the postmoderns that in the beginning was the Word, but the author matters. And that's where we'll part company. The, the Word is a communication from one being to another, whereas who wrote it matters to the Christian. See, you could have a thoroughly postmodern view of the scripture, and I think some people do, and say that, well, if it talks to me, then it, it's meaningful. If it doesn't, I'll ignore it. But in the end, you land up knowing nothing, and you'll end up with real contradiction. The Word of God, we say, is its own authentication. Yes, it's true that the Word itself is what speaks but the word of God authenticates itself and points us to its author, not to itself. And so, this points a, a way forward. We don't have to be stuck in the rationalism and reductionism and modernism, but neither do we have to put up with that solipsism that's inherent in postmodernism, the view that in the end only what it means to me matters. Solipsism is technically the view that everybody else is a fun only I exist and everybody else is a function of my imagination. Um, and that, of course, fairly coherent, you know, perfectly logical view, really. <laughs> but, um, and it, postmodernism is, is inherently solipsist. It doesn't go quite that far, but it says effectively, only I exist in my universe and that's all that matters. But the world isn't our story. The world is God's story. And we are expected to understand it. That was the last slide. Oh no, that's right, I've just put that one down. I've just quoted Peter here. Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do with the other scriptures, to their own destruction. 
we don't claim that everything in the scripture is perfectly understandable at an elementary level. And in fact, it is possible to twist it to destruction. We have to understand it. But we're reminded also that the perfect revelation of God is through not a person, who, a person who is described as the Word, but who is a person, Jesus Christ. The Word is personal and um, the Scripture is personal because it is a communication. So, I, that's uh, sort of my idea perhaps of the, the power of the story and how the story can manipulate people and it does manipulate people um, and we should be aware of that and how we should be avoid stories that are too simple but that we can find that there is if we don't try and interpret it in either a modernist or postmodern way we can find the meaning of the scripture because the scripture does create its own meaning in that sense but it's the meaning that the author intended Okay, stop there. I don't know who wants to ask questions or say anything. But, uh It's very, I don't know, I mean, it's, yeah, it, it's very hard because if we knew what next, then, uh, you know, we'd all, um, you know, we'd all be, uh, yeah, I mean, there are people who have seen where the implications, I mean, I mean, Nietzsche did it very much, for instance. I mean, Nietzsche was 150 years ahead of his time. But he saw that, you know, that without God, that, that meaning would be degraded. Um, I mean, I don't, what, what next? I, I don't know. Um, I, I do think that, that postmodernism is inherently unstable because it suffers from the objection that you have to try and persuade people to be postmoderns or whatever. You, you do actually have to try and communicate something. You have to. Can you believe that it's an absolute truth that there's no absolute truth? You know, maybe Foucault could, but most of us find this a bit difficult. So, I, I do think that it is inherently unstable. I mean, the critical theorists are talking about post-postmodernism now. Um, uh, and they keep the idea of text, I think, but they're, they're talking about the, um, the idea that text, that it, it's, you can attach a deep meaning to text. I, I have to say, I don't really understand this. I, I'm not exactly sure what, the, um, what, what this means, but it's, it's less... And it's more serious, if you like, less playful than, than, than postmodernism. But whether it will actually catch on as a, you know, as, as a sort of philosophy of life, as opposed to something that the critical theorists talk about in literature or media studies, is a different 
a different issue. Um, I mean, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe we'll all become Muslims, but they, you, you can see that there is this There is this attraction, interestingly, of the more rigid forms of religion now. Protestantism has the disadvantage that it requires you to think for yourself um, in a way that some forms of Islam, not all of course, I mean, you know, not all forms of Islam and not all forms of Catholicism, but one, one tends to see the Attractions and those forms of religion which don't require you to think for yourself. Um, that you're, you can be told what to think. Um, and maybe that's a reaction, I, I don't know. I mean, how the, the contradictions in modern political correctness and liberalism are, are becoming more and more obvious by the day. I mean, the government has to sort of exist in a state of permanent schizophrenia in one sense when they, you know, they're pro-family but they're pro gay rights as well, they're pro, you know, they're pro-immigration but they're anti-immigration. Yeah. That's just where it brings you and there's no, if you've got no concept of, real concept of truth. So I think that the, the situation we're in is inherently unstable but where it will go from here, I'm afraid I don't make any uh, claim to that sort of insight. Yes, I think that is true. Um, postmodernism, certainly in, you know, say in the, perhaps in the last decade, particularly the last couple of decades of the 20th century, very much put the emphasis on, 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 on the playful, on the, on the iconic. That, um, for instance, talking about postmodern architecture, for instance, when you would perhaps have a, a perfectly ordinary, you know, semi-detached house but when you go inside you would find this grand staircase or something like that um, it's very much um, a, 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 a distort a, you know a sort of picking up of ideas and, and this idea of the people's princess I think is very much that sort of idea it's uh, perhaps it's not humorous in the, in the sense that some of the these ideas are but it's it's playful certainly that there is a, you know, that there is a, a member of royalty who's sort of exalted, sort of person who is still one of the people, as it were. And it's it's very uh, that sort of playful idea, I think. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that that certainly was true. To some extent, it is still true. I mean, it's certainly true of, of comedy, for instance. I mean, it was true of obviously an obvious example is the. Um, uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus type comedy it's, uh, that puts everything as ridiculous. There, there, is, there, you know, there is nothing that is serious. Everything is up for being presented as ridiculous. And of course now the BBC is having heart searching, isn't it? It's, it has a different it's discovering it has a different attitude to Islam than than to almost anything else. Um, whether this is a fear of being blown up or whether it's, you know, they justify it and once it says something, oh, well, they're a minority, they have to be given special treatment or something. But, well, who, who isn't a minority? Everybody's a minority nowadays. <laughs> the minority of one. 
you know, one suspects that it's really a case they don't, they, they don't want to become a target of like, like Sam and Rushdie did. <laughs> Postmodernism is Zen, you see. <laughs> um, sound of one hand clapping. Um, I'm not sure it, it's quite the same. I mean, Zen is about. Well, well, first of all, Zen has never really taken over the world anyway, has it? I mean, it's, it, it is a very intellectual <laughs> kind of religion, Zen. Um, the, and. It's, yeah, it does thrive on paradox, sure, but I think the paradox is meant to lead to insight in Zen, whereas I think in postmodernism the paradox is meant to lead to paradox. Um, well, I, I'm not an expert on Eastern religions. I mean, if you come along in three weeks, you'll probably find a lot. You know. Yeah, yeah, but three weeks later you'll come and say, you told me that and it was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But Zen is is the the form of Buddhism, I think, that suggests that insight can't be taught, but you you can only achieve insight yourself. But what you can do is um, point people in the right direction by sort of um, things that you, you, you meditate on. And of course, the, the, the famous one that everybody thinks of is the West. In the West, is is what is the sound of one hand clapping? Um, I just read a book called The Sound of No Hand Clap, No Hands Clapping. Actually, I thought it was a much better paradox. But uh, <laughs> um, but uh, that's that's the sort of Zen that that you you achieve insight through. You detach yourself from the world. Yeah. Yes. That's the modernist story. Yeah, the, the naturalist version of the modernist story. Anyway, yes. Yeah, I, and um, some people still believe that. I mean, Richard Dawkins being the obvious example. And he he doesn't. I, I think honestly, think he doesn't understand why people people don't agree with him. You know, he 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 can't see why people insist on believing in all these weird, weird religions and things. Um, because to him that's his story and it makes sense to him. It just doesn't make sense to other people. And I, I think that that's... Um, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think modernism... You know, there are still modernists around. But I think that modernism as a dominant force intellectual force is not what it was and I think certainly its, it's influence on the um, general population not, not just on the um, not just I say in intellectual circles but I think the influence on the general population as, as modernism has, has very much declined 
Well, that's certainly what he's trying to do. I mean, he's, he's, he, you know, he's a good communicator. How, how successful is he in doing that is, an, is another question. Um, possibly. Yeah. Um, Still, yes. Um, yeah. Because the, the, the general view is that we're working, we're doing research, we're doing experiments mm. to find a better understanding of things, and if there's disagreement, it's because um, you know at least one of the views is wrong, um, and we're going to do an experiment to um, decide conclusively which view is correct and which is wrong. Um, you know, it's not just that these views are wrong. Yes, the, the, the problem is that it only works in certain fields of knowledge. I mean, I don't think anybody disputes that in the physical sciences, positivism is the way to go. Um, you know, that, that's the way science is done, and, and within that context, it works very well. But you can only talk about certain types of knowledge that way. I mean, the, 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 finan- the current financial crisis is a very good example of almost entirely constructed meaning and yet something that has an impact on everybody and you know people losing their jobs and 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 so on and not having standard of living de- de- declining yet it's almost entirely the, the the modern concept of money is almost entirely a constructed one it it has no um relation really i mean if it's backed by anything it's labor backed but even that's only to a to a limited extent and um, i mean even 30 years ago, I remember when I did this, when I first went to university and I had to do a training then, and even then, um, somebody was talking, you know, this sort of idea was around even then, and somebody said to me, well, let's face it, if you can convince everybody in the world that you own the Eiffel Tower, then let's face it, you do own it. And, and that's true enough, isn't it? I mean, you know, the, even the concept of ownership to that extent is a, is a constructed meaning. Um, on the other hand, I said, yeah, well, that's okay, but do you mean that if I could convince everybody that I could jump off the Eiffel Tower without killing myself, then I could do it? Um, so, you can't entirely divorce yourself from, from the empirical world, but, but it's the, 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 you can, empiricism is very good at talking about certain things. The, the, the jump is to say that, that's the on, that those are the only things it's worth talking about. And, and I don't think that is a plausible view because there are lots of things that we... Uh, there are lots of meanings that are not empirically verified, verifiable. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think modernism as... I think, you know, as I say, empiricism and positivism as a philosophy of science is, is a different issue, I think. I think most scientists would regard, you know, physical scientists at least, not mathematicians are rather different, of course, but physical scientists would regard positivism as the correct way of doing science, but the modernist view, the, the Dawkins view, is that that is the only sort of information that's worth having. That if you can't verify something empirically, it's, it can't have any meaning. And yet, Dawkins himself uses terms that have meaning if they're not empirical. Like wicked, for instance. 
And um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I No, no. Well, I'm not sure it's a modernist view that you prefer peace to war, for instance. Do I um, believe that people have consciences? Then yes, of course. Mm. Um, It's it's actually interesting that, um, I mean, I'm not... You see, people say that that Foucault took his view because he was a paedophile, which I think he was. Um, uh, But, you know, does that mean what he says is wrong? Um, You know, you can argue that Dawkins takes a view because he was brought up in a rather unsupportive Catholic background, which I've been told, I don't know the history, but somebody told me that once. Um, And that's why he's so anti-religion. But that doesn't actually mean that what he's saying is wrong. Uh, But we are so manipulated by our society, by our our backgrounds. You know, that's why we don't understand the past. You know, we, we find it actually very difficult to understand the, the position of, say, the Catholic Church at the time of Galileo, because we've been so manipulated by in generations of enlightenment and thinking. And yet, you know, at the time, they probably thought they were doing the best for the, for the people. We can't... Even that... We can look back at Rome and think, oh, that's interesting, this idea of the empire that Rome had, and how can we possibly, you know, but we can't go with that now. And yet, you've only got to go back 100, 150 years when Britain ran an even bigger empire, <laughs> and imperialism then was good. You know, it's suddenly gone out of fashion. Well, it went out of fashion, it seems to be coming back into fashion now, but, um, but uh, you know, and yet, we don't, even, you know, two generations later, we, we find it very hard to think, to have that view of empire that, say, Cecil Rhodes had, or um, perhaps some of the more liberal, uh, you know, I mean, perhaps Cecil Rhodes isn't a good example because he was a bit of a chancer, wasn't he? But um, some of the, um, you know, even, well, Livingstone, for instance. Livingstone, the missionary, yeah, he, had, he definitely had a, a view of, you know, taking Western British civilization to the 
benighted heathen. It wasn't only that he was taking Christianity, though he was doing that, but he was taking civilization as well. You know, he tried to open up the, the roots to the interior. And we find it difficult to think in those. And now, now, of course, we just get ourselves totally confused. Because on one hand, we're all in favour of preserving indigenous cultures. And, but, you know, on the other hand, they, they, you, know, what, you can't do that without, you know, if you impact on them, they change. All cultures change, adapt. So what's the point in trying to hold, what, hold in stasis, as it were? So it doesn't make any sense. And yet, you know, we find ourselves in that position of you value everything, then you've got to keep everything. So I, I think we are much more manipulated. Yeah, sure, we, we, we function. And you say, you know, the person on the Clapham omnibus probably has a conscience and probably doesn't go on to go around sort of throwing people off, pushing people off the bus or whatever, but we're so manipulated by our, the, the way that the society around us thinks. Yeah. Uh, no, I won't ask you to explain that because you said it could be better. Um, I was, I was, and also I know it would be almost a silly question to say, well, what, what could come after postmodernism comes after modernism? What will come after postmodernism? Yeah. But, I mean, you might, might speculate from what? Yeah. Uh, well, so, I mean, what, what would be a kind of logical next step for yeah. a dominant yeah. Well, as I say, I, I, I didn't say philosophers actually, I said critical theorists. Um, I, uh, yeah, well, I, I was on a validation panel for uh, a media uh, degree and um, they, they talked about post-postmodernism there and uh, I, asked, I said, well, what does this actually mean? And I'm not sure I got an entirely convincing explanation but the explanation I was given was that, that in critical theories, nobody's used the term postmodernism since about 1994, and nowadays they um, they're, they're interested in the, the deep meaning of text, and that's about the best explanation I could get. Um, but how much impact that's had on the general, more general philosophical world, or even if there is a more general philosophical world anymore, is is a, is a different question. I suppose it will. I mean, philosophy certainly is much more popular as a study than it used to be uh, 30, 40 years ago. Mm. Yes. Yes, and it's easier, isn't it? You can always see what's wrong when it's trying to produce something that's coherent. It's, it's different. It's a, I, don't know. I rather like the... Um, I like, uh, this, this is probably entirely irrelevant. In fact, it's probably a very postmodern comment, actually. But I rather like the, um, the, 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 the quote I heard from Socrates on marriage recently, uh, who said... Um, it, was, it was in the Telegraph. They published this book of, um, of, of quote, apt quotations. Um, and this one from Socrates said, Socrates is said to have said, by all means get married. If you find a good wife, you'll be happy. And if you get a bad one, you'll become a philosopher. Uh, <laughs> 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 
I think it is, I mean, it is worth being aware of the way that the world thinks and I think that's the point of saying this really, that the world is very manipulated now by the media and we are and everybody is and I think it's worth being aware of that. I'm not saying you can necessarily totally avoid it and we do, we are, everybody is influenced by the culture in which they live, Christian or not, but um, they but do you think that would make the ordinary person, for instance, be more questioning about things like whatever they read or hear via the media? Is that what this well, is that the value of being aware of the existence of a postmodern way of thinking? Well, it, it, w- it, w- it would be if you could convince people of that. The, 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 I mean, the, the advantage of being a, a that's another quote. <laughs> I'm going to prove all these quotes now. That Aldous Huxley apparently said, an intellectual is somebody who's found something more interesting than sex. But I don't know if that's... Um, but the, the, the intellectual world is about um, looking at these, uh, looking at these um, you know, things and, and stepping back. And so, you know, there are certain advantages in being an academic in at least you know you're being messed about with. But... Um, but the, the problem is that people, you know, the man on the, on the Clapham omnibus, as we say, tends to think this is the only way of looking at the world. So, you know, the man on the, on the Clapham, Clapham horse tram 150 years ago thought it was entirely natural that Britain should rule the world. That was the way the world was, you know. Um, you, you can't think of any other... Um, and this is the difficulty, that people don't realise that they are manipulated. Oh, I'm sure all people have always been manipulated by stories. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think to that extent, the postmoderns are quite right. They've pointed out this fact that people are always manipulated by stories. Yes. Yes. It has been. So it yes. Has a yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And of course, in the, I mean, the, the original French Revolutionaries tried to banish religion, but of course they rapidly realised it was a very bad idea because the whole social fabric fell apart. And so Napoleon was quite in favour of religion. In fact, not because he believed it himself, but he realised what the the, uh, you know, the advantages for maintaining the stability of the um, of the, of the society. Yeah. Yeah, which is why I, I, I find Dawkins, I personally find Dawkins' argument against religion totally meaningless because his argument against religion is it's not true. But his argument should be is it survival? Does it help you survive? And if there is any, if there is, a, as far as statistics is concerned, it seems that religion actually does help you to survive. I mean, after, after giving up smoking, the, the, the best things you can do to increase your life expectancy are to get married and take up a religion. Yes.
So if that, you know, the, and yet Dawkins insists on this concept of truth, which is a bit uh, bouncing there. Dawkins' fiction is just a bombast, isn't it? Yeah, you see, he's media savvy. Yeah, yeah. He knows how to manipulate the media. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that, well, yeah. well, it doesn't look as though they have them in America, though, does it? I mean, Sarah Palin is far more conservative religiously than George Bush ever was. <laughs> Palin philosophy. I mean, that's the sort of thing you look at, is it? Palin ph- phenomenon must be a sociological, very, very interesting. It's a piece of sociology. Uh, I said on, have I got news for you? She's pro-life, but not for bears. much of the church is actually influenced by postmodern thinking that the that there's a kind of religious political correctness um, that there's certain things that I mean there's certain things that one doesn't doesn't do and um, there's, there's so much emphasis on how well it feels as to whether it's true or not um, Uh, yeah, uh, I, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think, I think that. I mean, are you saying? Should, do you think preachers should rage against postmodernism? I, I guess I think they ought to point out that what it says, point out what it is saying, and what the implications of that are. Just as one should point out what modernism is saying and what the implications of that are. Um, that's not to say that I think that the Christian church should totally abandon, divorce itself from the surrounding culture. It never has done that. Um, when it's tried to, it's usually been a disaster. I mean, like the murder of Hypatia, for instance. Um, whereas Augustine was very much sort of said, you know, we can learn from the Greek philosophers and so on. So I, I think that we should, we should understand, you know, we learn from the the postmodern critique of, of meaning and, you know, and the way and understand the way that we are manipulated by the text. So I think that's good. But the, 
to, to buy it then into the implication that the text constructs its own meaning independently of anything else, which is dangerously close to what some Christians seem to think. <laughs> you know, if, if it feels if it feels right, it must be the right interpretation. You know, it must be. You, you, you can construct your own meaning of the scripture, whereas, as it, Peter says, scripture is not a matter of private interpretation. Um, is that Peter? Sure. Anyway, so we'll find it. No. So, I, I suppose it's the danger of yeah. slipping into a, a modernist kind of Christianity. So. Yeah, uh, uh, well, I think that is, that is what happened. Um, I think that was true in, in mid-century. Uh, sorry? Well, no, because people have largely... I mean, again, even 30, 40 years ago, people were saying to me, well, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as we love each other. Would you say that it's century? So, century is that? I mean, you know, in about 1950. Okay. Um, the, yeah, the, um, I think that, yeah, I mean, that Christianity was too influenced then, probably by rationalist ideas. Um, even if it was opposing them, it took, you know, the, the opposition to say or support or opposition to evolutionism for instance was very much a sort of on, on, on the ground of the of, you know if, if, the, if, if, if this is true then Genesis can't be true or whatever rather than saying was this actually are they actually saying something different anyway and if so what is different so Well, some did, yeah. Some, some, some did, and of course, yeah, some people still do, of course. But yes, yeah, yeah. I think there's there's an aspect of modernist thinking there that the, the that the scripture is can be interpreted in a very in a rather simplistic way, and yet that is exactly that's why my, no, I'm always quoting the book of Job because I think the whole point of the book of Job is it's there to tell us that the scripture can't always be interpreted in a very simplistic way that you have to understand that there is that there are subtleties of, of meaning. Um, like, I, I mean, I think one thing I did agree with, I noticed one, um, there's one reporter on the television was talking about the um, financial crisis and talking about the influence of religion and said that the Bible is ambivalent about money and I think actually she was right. I think the Bible is very ambivalent about wealth. Um, it, it's... Um, it, you know, it's not in favour of poverty, but realise you know, all the way through there are warnings against the danger, dangers inherent in wealth. So. Too certain about, about how clear things are as, as evangelicals, if you like. So we, uh, 
Yes. I entirely agree. I think that's what I was trying to say. And I think I say. I think that's what the Book of Job is saying. That that any any formulation, and that's why, you know, why don't we check out the Bible and use Berkhoff instead? Because the the Bible isn't written that way. That the the you know we do try and codify things because that's the, the way we think. You know, we tend to try and think in. To, we tend to tell ourselves stories to make sense of things. Um, and yet, as you say, the, the, the story is always determined to some extent by our, our cultural context, even if we're opposing it. You still, and like, like there's somebody pointed out that the American Academy of Science was saying, you know, it doesn't make sense to say that God would have, would have hidden all these fossils in the, in the ground just to confuse you, you know, just to play a joke on you. And um, so somebody pointed out, well, of course, if you were talking about the Norse god Lotte, that would be exactly what you expect. So they pointed out, in fact, the American Academy of Science was very clear about which God they didn't believe in. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, you're all, we're always determined by the questions we ask. So, we, we look at the, um, the Greek, the, the early formulations of the Trinitarian doctrine, for instance, about being of one substance, and uh, I can't remember what it says now. Um, Three persons of one substance. I can't remember exactly what it says, but it's very rooted in Greek philosophy. Um, and some of the concepts don't quite make sense nowadays, but we, we keep them as a, as, a, you know, as a good historical statement of the Trinitarian position anyway. But, um, but yeah, I, I do think that we were, we were over-systematic, yes. But now I think we've gone to the opposite extreme. And, not be, you know, and, and deny that, that we're almost taking the view that meaning is whatever you construct it to be and to me that is far more dangerous than, actually than, than being over systematic Which is the cause and which is the effect? <laughs> I do. I do. I mean, this is. If you read the the FIC doctrine we've got out on that. Actually, it doesn't say in in, in errant and infallible and errant, does it? I mean, I, I agree. You know, I, I sign up for that. I have to. I can't be a deacon if I don't sign up to it being infallible and inerrant. And yet. That those two terms do slightly worry me because I think they 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 are they are kind of modernist terms. Um, as I said before, what the Bible says about itself is that it's inspired, it's God-breathed, and it's unbreakable. Scripture cannot be broken, which isn't almost the same, but maybe not quite. <laughs> Yes. 
the, the Pope is supposed to be infallible, I think, in Catholic doctrine when he speaks ex cathedra. Go on. I got a bit of a lecture on this from my RS teacher. Pope is, uh, he's not infallible, he's only infallible when he's speaking ex cathedra. Ex cathedra, yeah. So yes. I think Pope, mm. I mean, Scripture is sufficient for, for salvation. Yeah. And Stimulating our thoughts. At this point, the conversation goes on. <laughs> um, it's good to be challenged in this way, isn't it? So, thank you ever so much, Steve, for the material you put together. And um, we will be having a film in a couple of weeks' time. And I don't know exactly which one it is, but there we are. Come with anticipation on the night, and um, we'll have some more stimulation in that way. So, let me close in prayer. Thank you, Father. You've given us uh, minds to think. And uh, we thank you for what has been put before us tonight. We do pray that you would help us to be uh, thoughtful and careful in our thinking and our living. And we do thank you for the fact that you have spoken to us and you do speak to us. And we thank you for that reality. Uh, We ask that in this Uh, very confusing world that we might have better and clearer understanding of you and your ways and your purposes. And we ask, Father, that you would um, bless us now as as we leave, give us a good night, a good night's rest, and uh, be with us uh, tomorrow and indeed the rest of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.